state of the race for mayor. I'm Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. And this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Jared, how you doing? I'm hungry since you asked. Okay, other than that, well, I'm well. How are you? If if we hear you eating during the show, we'll be mildly offended, but understand uh, <laughs> where, where it comes understand. from. Uh, I'm doing okay. You know, uh, we had this amazing glimpse of spring yesterday that was kind of enticing. Back to the cold today, but. Um, <laughs> You know, I think uh, the seasons, you know, the, the year is moving along. It's it's light out right now as we speak at five o'clock. And uh, and that means, you know, the political calendar is moving along as well. And we are talking today on February 17th, four months from now, early voting will already have started in the New York City government elections of 2021 the primaries that will occur in June. Uh, the election day itself, primary day is June 22nd, but under the new early voting system, early voting will be already underway at this point four months from now. So we are really in uh, something of a stretch run here. We are indeed. And uh, because of that, it's time for us to check in with a guest who's been on the show before wearing some of his different badges. That's Scott Stringer, the city councilor, one of the leading Democratic candidates for the mayoral nomination to be awarded on June 22nd or in the voting and in the voting that you mentioned happening before that because of early voting and most likely because of the pandemic, a lot of mail-in voting, too. We'll be talking with him about some of the policy proposals he's made in recent weeks, some older ones that are still relevant relevant and how he sees the race uh, shaping up. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's a week, Ben, when there's been a, a little bit of news on uh, some of the other candidates in the campaign and, and their fundraising. Yes. So there was uh, another fundraising, not filing, but analysis by the campaign finance board and both Scott Stringer and Eric Adams, the Brooklyn Borough president, two of the leading candidates for mayor in the Democratic primary, both got another batch of public matching funds under the city's current system. But in something of a a disappointment to her campaign, Maya Wiley, the civil rights attorney, former counsel to Mayor Bill de Blasio, former chair of the Civilian Complaint Review Board, among other hats, did not get public matching funds as she and her campaign thought they would. They seem to be on track to get the significant windfall of public matching funds next month in March when there's another filing and another evaluation of those filings from the campaigns. But that was really one big highlight from the decisions from the campaign finance board. We're waiting for a little bit more detail on why the board did not um, take the the same audit of of the donations that Wiley had uh, received that her campaign thought it would in terms of meeting the threshold for city-based donations that qualified for the matching. But that was one interesting headline. I will note, of course, you know, again, it is four months from the primary, so it would be good to have that money, but it's not essential. This is pretty early in the cycle for big spending, and the campaign should have money to spend until it gets that public matching money next month. Right, that's true. I mean, this is built into the system that we have the, the filing in January and then a couple chances, a couple cuts for candidates to, to get that money. I think what's you know what's really striking just overall is that in this race that has so many people in it, um, and and many of them you know obviously doing fairly well in fundraising. Um, we only have two candidates, Eric Adams and Scott Stringer, the only two who have received the matching funds uh, so far. And in this round that you just mentioned, where Wiley did not get it, uh, Adams and Stringer, who had received. 
funds on the first payment um, back in December uh, got another dose of them um, so that between the two of them, they've received just close to $10 million. Um, and, and that's it. The rest of the field has not. And of course, there are chances you mentioned down the road to either qualify based on what they've already filed or to file new stuff and qualify for that come come March. Um, but that would come later in the race. And, and for some candidates, eventually you run into a point where you uh, can't keep the lights on and, and it can't really have an effect on your ability to stay in the thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think at this point, we're waiting to see exactly who else gets the significant public matching funds. There's one outlier right now, which is Ray McGuire, uh, who we've had on the show. Uh, We've had just about everybody on the show at this point, except Andrew Yang, who had to cancel an appearance due to his COVID diagnosis, but he was feeling well and back out on the trail today. And we have him booked for a show two weeks from today. So we're looking forward to having him on in a couple of weeks. Um, But Ray McGuire, the former Wall Street executive, is raising big money and not participating in the city's public matching funds program. And depending on how much he raises and spends, he might actually allow other candidates who are in the program to raise and spend more money themselves as well. But, um, you know, Andrew Yang, his campaign says they're going to hit the public matching threshold, which will unlock millions of public dollars. On this show last week, both Sean Donovan and Diane Morales, uh, I believe, said that they're both planning to hit the threshold. Catherine Garcia's campaign told me uh, the other day that she will hit the matching funds threshold. So right now in the mayor's race, there's something of an eight-candidate feel looking like it's emerging as the sort of top tier. Um, and, you know, there's ways to quibble with that. There's a couple other candidates that are sort of prominent. Uh, City Council Member Carlos Menchaca, you know, right now would be somewhere around number nine or 10 on that list. We'll see if he's able to put together a better campaign finance filing in March. Um, but there's eight candidates right now who are either going to hit the public matching funds, they say, or are Ray McGuire, who's already raised well over $5 million in counting uh, to compete in the race. Money's not everything, but it go. It's very important, and uh, and you know one of the key things, which we'll get to with Scott Stringer in just a few minutes, is you know how do you spend that money amid COVID? How do you campaign when it's mostly a remote campaign? Will there be more in-person campaigning in the months ahead as more people are vaccinated and the weather gets warmer? Uh, there's many fascinating aspects of this campaign, but money is an important one. We have uh, our guest for today on the line. I'm very happy to welcome back to Max and Murphy, a one-time assemblyman, a former Manhattan Borough president, now the city comptroller and a Democratic candidate for mayor, Scott Stringer. Welcome to Max and Murphy. It is great to be back. How is it? How are you guys doing? We're doing all right. We're doing, doing all right. Okay, how are you? Thanks. Good. I'm doing good. I'm in my two-bedroom apartment. I got my 20-square-feet of room. I got, you know, I'm running this campaign, man. <laughs> yes, the, the, the whole empire is there. Well, thanks for being on, and, and we want to talk about so much with you. And I think, you know, we City Limits published a story not long ago about your role as a policy proposer, I guess is the right phrase, as city comptroller. City comptrollers in recent turns have taken more and more to proposing policy ideas, and, and you've done a lot, you know, one might even say more more than one can shake a stick at. Um, <laughs> and what I wonder is, given how many you've issued over the entirety of your time in the comptroller's office, which is more than 70 years now, when you think about that stuff, d- does all of that translate over to the mayoral campaign? If you wanted to know what Scott Stringer's policy on childcare is, you go look at that thing he issued when he was comptroller? Or has the city changed enough because of COVID that a lot of that stuff needs to be reset? 
I want to appreciate uh, both of you as the two people who probably have read every single policy report I put out. Uh, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing for you. But um, what you should know is that this didn't start with me as controller. As borough president, I built a policy shop on a lot of issues related to public health and land use and zoning and looking at charter vision proposals. I actually issued 50 reports during my tenure as controller. And as far back as being in the assembly, uh, I was also known for looking at issues through the lens of serious public policy. And I do think that people want to understand uh, where an elected official has been, especially as that person gets ready to run for mayor. So I do think the body of work that I've put out for the public in my different offices, I do think it's relevant to have that discussion on some of the major issues of the day. Some of it is relevant right now to the future of the city. And I'm sure there are things that we have to think differently about as we are in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, speaking of some of the plans that you have issued as a candidate, uh, a sweeping one came out recently on transit. There's a lot to talk about there, but one thing jumped out to me as someone who spent a good portion of my life on subway platforms waiting for a train and sometimes enjoying the local musicians who uh, also position themselves there is a plan or a promise to aim for uh, getting a train or bus to come every six minutes um, every day all day as far as I read it is that is that the plan and, and is that is that really possible oh it's definitely possible and look uh, you know, I grew up in the city uh, the A train was my lifeline as a kid uh, I spent many days mornings and nights uh, waiting for trains that never seemed to come and I do think that we have to start to think about New York City in six I call it NYC in six to increase service at all hours and that comes in a number of different ways. We have to build out our our subway and bus infrastructure. We do have to rely on money to do this. You can't just make promises you can't keep. Uh, I am optimistic that the federal government's gonna put more money into public transit and green infrastructure and New York City as a whole, but I do think we're gonna see an investment in our uh, subway infrastructure. And I have a proposal that we have to really get passed in Albany, which is literally to flip the gas tax, which currently splits revenue, you know, 66% for highways, 33% for mass transit. It's about $1.2 billion when you look at it all together. I think if we could flip that gas tax, we could raise $400 million a year for New York City in six. And I would take that $400 million and invest it in the, that $6 million, uh, the NYC under, uh, in six plan. One thing that struck out, jumped out at me in the plan is that uh, you promised to rationalize parking. And, and I was looking at the stats the other day, and every day I think back when life was normal, 1.7 million New Yorkers took mass transit to work or school and a million rode cars, some of them carpooling and some of them riding their own car. So cars are a big part of the picture in terms of the daily commute now. How do you see parking being rationalized? And do you feel if you're elected that some moves need to be made to move New York City toward being a car-free place? Look, I think we have to reimagine our transportation system. And we do have the roadmap, no pun intended. Uh, we saw what we did when we closed streets, when we moved to outdoor dining, when we started to look at different ways to create 
dedicated public spaces in the midst of COVID. And the plan I put out is very uh, all-encompassing. It's a 27-point plan. Spent a lot of time thinking about it. Uh, and, and let me just say, as we think about less parking and less cars, First, we massively have to expand bus lanes and busways and bus shelters. People talk about whether the city should take over the subway system. I just don't think economically it's feasible. And talking about it only keeps us away from what we can do. And as mayor, I want to be the street mayor and the bus mayor and improve enforcement to keep buses clear, you know, increase off-peak and weekend service. I want to connect the bus networks to the new economic hubs in the five boroughs. We're now really a five-borough economy. And I want to keep going. I want to look at our streets and think about creating 100 miles of protected bike lanes in two years and 350 miles over five years. And I give Corey Johnson credit uh, and the city council for laying out that plan. But we do need somebody who knows how to manage and get things done to make it happen. And I think I can. And then I do think we have to look at how we can overhaul parking and placards and increase community public space. And there's a lot of ideas I have on that. But I don't think we have to be car centric. I think there's a yearning for having walkways and busways. And let me just mention, because I could talk about this for the whole show. Look, let's take a look at these highways. We do not have to replace one superhighway with another. Look at the BQE. Uh, that, that highway has to come down because it's dangerous. But I have a plan that would totally rethink uh, that highway, uh, less reliant on building, building a highway for cars, more public space, open space, decking uh, the BQE. And then why stop there? We have 240 million miles of highways in our city, thanks to Robert Moses. Why not see how we can deconstruct them and create a more environmentally sound transportation network? This is an incredible moment in time. For voters for whom the climate is a major issue, uh, climate change, protecting the city against the impacts of climate change, two candidates have issued I would say really detailed plans. Your can your campaign and uh, former Housing Secretary Sean Donovan's have. Uh, let me ask you: How do you see your plan as distinct uh, from his? I, I know in some ways it's more ambitious. How do you think it stands out? Well, I, I, I don't mean to be disrespectful to Mr. Donovan, but I really haven't focused on his plan. Uh, but I certainly think it's important for candidates to talk about a climate plan, plan and climate change. Uh, what I would say to you about what I'm doing, clim the climate crisis is here now. And New York needs a mayor with solutions to put a plan into action starting on day one. And as controller, I successfully led the nation's first and largest divestment from fossil fuel companies. I was the first to oppose the William and North Brooklyn pipelines. Last month, we proposed a bold and comprehensive climate plan to truly deliver a Green New Deal to New Yorkers, and it was praised by Bill McKibben and 350.org. 
I'm not just stopping at fossil fuel divestment, which is a historic divestment. I want to talk about how we're going to end in the era of fossil fuel infrastructure. When I'm mayor, there's going to be no new pipelines. We're going to retire the old peaker plants. I want to create a public utility to power the city with 100% renewable energy uh, by 2035. Many of you know that I was the first elected official to say we should close Rikers, but I joined with one of my supporters, Costa Constantinides, with a call to renew uh, for a renewable Rikers, which would be bold and energy efficient and would give us the ability to create a new energy source. Uh, so my plan would protect as well 520 miles of coastline from climate change. I was there during Hurricane Sandy. I was in lower Manhattan. I was throughout the five boroughs trying to get food and supplies to people. I saw how our city government failed the people uh, on the coastline of this city. I saw the federal government's lack of response. I saw the city's lack of response. Basically, we turned over the whole protecting of the city to outside consultants that did not meet the needs of thousands and thousands of people in Staten Island and in Queens and throughout our shoreline, I am very committed to changing that. And look, I have skin in this game. I mean, I got two little kids. I got a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old. I want them to not be victimized by this generation's failure to get our arms around the changing climate in this planet and our generation has failed. The fact that I could be mayor and implement this climate change and look in my kids' eyes and someday they say, Dad, we in the fight. What did you do? It motivates me greatly, as it does a lot of parents who worry not about themselves, but about their children and grandchildren. The 520 miles of New York City coastline, that is a huge vulnerability to one key aspect of climate change, which is sea level rise and all the problems associated with that. How do you protect all of that territory from sea level rise and can it all be protected? Are there areas that perhaps are beyond protection? Well, 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 let's put it this way. Uh, The only protection plan we really talk about is the plan to protect lower Manhattan, which I appreciate. I live there. But I think we should be more less concerned with only protecting Wall Street and really protecting Main Street, which requires us to develop and implement the five borough resiliency plan. And there's a lot of ways to do it with, uh, you know, with our wetlands, uh, a floodplain restoration program. There's so many ways that we can begin to do this. And we have the scientists and the environmentalists. We have capacity in the city already, national organizations, local expertise. One of the things I'm going to do as mayor is bring capacity to the mayor's office. And that is certainly going to be true in our climate strategy because we have got to start looking at money that's been unspent from FEMA, money that we haven't even touched because we don't have plans in place. That all has to change. And that's my candidacy, somebody who could walk into the mayor's office on day one uh, and understand exactly what we have to put in place. That comes from my specific plans, the work that I've actually done. You know, we haven't just called for divestment. I've also doubled the green uh, the green investments in the pension fund, doubled it uh, to make sure that we land with solar power and uh, and a whole new way of investor interest in uh, climate restoration. So this is something that I feel passionately about and will implement on day one. 
food policy is an area where I think you referred earlier to your work as borough president. You were, you know, early in talking about that as an area where we needed to think more about city policy regarding food. Uh, you've discussed some, some plans on food recently, and, and there's a lot to talk about there too. But one thing you mentioned is uh, something called a shared delivery zone. Can you just talk a little bit about that? When I read that, I began to get worried that someone else was going to get my, my pad thai or my, my, um, my submarine sandwich. Uh, what would a shared delivery zone look like? Well, it's, 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 about, it's about making sure that we can best source uh, a lot of our food deliveries and our delivery system. Uh, a lot of this comes from the work I did uh, during my borough president race and, it's, uh, and, and making sure that we can also think about a closer network of healthy food to our communities. Uh, I do believe in vertical farming and rooftop gardening that can feed and source locally. These are some of the challenges that I think we should think about. You know, one of the areas, just not to digress totally, but just to talk about was our Go Green proposal in um, when I was Manhattan Borough President. I wanted very much to address some of the food inequity and the lack of fresh vegetables in East Harlem in particular, where there was such a high rate of asthma and, and pre-existing health conditions. And, and I remember as borough president convening a meeting, making a big call to come and hear my plan and to get activists to buy into what I wanted to do. And I learned a lesson when very few people showed up because what I was trying to do was tell them how a community should fight back rather than actually taking the time to develop a program with the community. And it was an early lesson for me about the potential of working with community-based planning. And that's how we formed Go Green. And what people wanted to talk about is they wanted to talk about a standalone asthma center that we needed to build. They wanted to engage young kids with something called Youth Bucks, which allowed kids to go to farmer's markets that we were creating, take that food home to the local communities. And through this plan, we were able to develop all of the things that today people talk about as well. And that is something uh, that, that I would like to see more of. Talk about your housing plan. This is something you've been active in, in criticizing Mayor de Blasio's approach in terms of the use of vacant land, in terms of the orientation of his, his housing initiative. How would a Stringer administration approach housing differently? You know, the, 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 the housing that, the housing built by mayors in New York is, is pretty incredible. If you think about going back to the 1930s when Mayor LaGuardia built the first public housing on the lower the Lower East Side. It really was creative and aspirational. You know, he went to Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, he got the money, and then we started to build this incredible uh, housing for low-income people, for new immigrants, for people who lived in tenements. And it really was aspirational. And after public housing in the 50s and 60s, as the war was ending, uh, government, mayors, 
governor's legislature started the Mitchell-Lama housing program, which was really about middle-income housing, middle-class housing. And again, hundreds of thousands of people would go on to live in this housing, raise children, and they still live there today. Uh, Ed Koch gave back the uh, abandoned buildings when there was flight out of the city. He gave those buildings to local corporate, local community-based organizations, and with great subsidy built another generation of low-income housing. My difference with the de Blasio administration was that we basically went to luxury developers who have great success in building apartments for wealthy people. And we said, if you would build uh, 30% affordable housing, we would give you the land, the density, whatever you needed from the land use process. And when I started calculating those numbers, as I as I usually do, and I did it through the lens of being a borough president, uh, I found that the housing that this administration was creating was actually unaffordable, affordable housing in so many of our communities, especially in communities of color. And what happened was we ended up seeing a surge in homelessness. We ended up seeing tremendous gentrification, and we still are grappling with that today. So I have a different housing plan. I would take the vacant, the thousand vacant parcels of land in this city that the city controls. It's it's our land. It's the people's land. Rather than give it to big developers, I would call on every uh, local community organization to help us build this housing. Uh, these are organizations that have a history of building low-income housing. They're not REITs. They're not, they're not owned by multi-international corporations, so they can actually get us to a better AMI. And that would be step one. Step two is in addition to using that land for low-income housing, I would say in this housing emergency that if we're going to have luxury development or as-of-right development, I should say, there has to be a 25% set aside of affordable housing throughout our city. And we also have to take a look at some of the vacant commercial space we have, vacant hotels. There's real zoning opportunities there. And as a borough president who spent a lot of time doing land use and zoning work, I started my career as a housing activist working on the, to try to save the Michelama housing program. Uh, I think this plan is doable. I think it's important. And I think we've got to build housing for the poorest people in this city. Controller Stringer, good to talk with you. Great to be here. Um, so just picking up a little bit more on, on housing before we get to a couple other topics. Um, mm-hmm. you've, you've come out in support of, the propo- of a proposed rezoning in the Soho neighborhood of Manhattan. Where else in the city do you think are, are good opportunities for, for more housing development? Well, I think throughout the city. And I think there's always a place in a zoning discussion about how you can look at appropriate places to upzone. That's what I did as borough president. There was an Upper West Side rezoning, work with the community to make sure that we respected uh, the historic nature of the community, but also there were areas that we identified to upzone to build affordable housing. That exercise, that plan should be implemented throughout the city, whether it's in Soho or anywhere else. But I would also say that right now, so much of the rezoning that resulted in gentrification uh, were not about building the actual affordable housing 
that was reflected in the community. So this was not successful. If we had a real housing plan and a ability to work, go back to something I used to do when I was borough president, actually work with communities, build trust, build community-based planning opportunities, I believe that we can do this kind of work right now. Let's, I do think that we should only, we shouldn't only rezone in black and brown communities, but in places like Soho and in neighborhoods around the city, every neighborhood should be looked as a place that we can build affordable housing, but real affordable housing, right? No, and no other neighborhoods on that list for now, though. Oh, I mean, you name me a neighborhood, you know, Upper East Side, Upper West Side, uh, you know, sure. in Manhattan. Uh, we could keep going to, you know, some of the more wealthier neighborhoods in the city. Everyone should want uh, people of all different backgrounds living together. That's what New York City is all about. You don't want to segregate communities. In other words, keep building affordable housing only in poor communities or communities that have more economic challenges. Every community should be part of dealing with the housing crisis. And I have no problem as mayor working with every community to find common ground and to iron out difficulties. I don't I, I don't think we have to be, uh, you know, start out angry. I think there could be real collaboration. This is what I was able to do as Manhattan Borough President. Community and planning you, will go a long way. And do you like um, the general gist of the Gowanus uh, upzoning and, and rezoning? I think there's a lot of questions that still have to be answered, you know, especially around public housing and others. But look, it's that collaborative process uh, that I support. Um, on this on this question of development, you talk about um, you know wanting to require more, even in as of right development from uh, from developers to ensure there's more affordable housing built. There's been a lot of discussion. Uh, Political New York had a recent article about this about your fundraising, who exactly you're taking money from, who you're not taking money from. You stopped at one point taking donations from real estate developers, or I think maybe you define it as bigger real estate developers. Um, is if you're if you're not uh, influenced by campaign donations, what's the point of these pledges? I, I'm, I'm often confused a little bit about you know candidates who say, "Well, I'm not influenced by campaign donations, but here who, here's who I'm not taking money from." Can you can you explain that? Yeah, you know, it, it, I, I thought about this a lot because I do come from a place where, you know, I don't care who gives me money. Uh, I'm going to be who I am and I'm going to act independently. And I'm proud of that record over 30 years. There's no question that that is legitimate. You know, if, if you're influenced by the money, uh, you definitely shouldn't take it. Uh, and if you're not influenced by the money, ask the question, then why are you curtailing your fundraising? And I think there has been a feeling among people in the city uh, that they would like to see a mayor and elected officials less encumbered by the influence of big money in campaigns uh, with developers in particular. Uh, and they would like to see a candidate uh, fund races differently. And I think it gives assurance to people. Look, I've got a tremendous housing, pro-housing record, both as a housing activist in the legislature, as borough president, as controller. And so my record has been 100% pro-tenant 
and working with communities. But if I could sort of say to people, look, we have the best campaign finance program in the country because of my policies and the coalition I'm building. I can rely on contributions under $250 and come into City Hall very clear and unencumbered. I think it's worth doing. And that's what I'm trying to do here. I'm not trying to be something I'm not. I'm not trying Mm -hmm. to game the system, but I just feel that this is a very powerful moment for a new government and to walk in raising money the way I have, not taking developer money, big developer money, not relying on that in any which way, but doing hundreds and hundreds between Zoom and house parties, hundreds of small dollar uh, campaign uh, events that have resulted in a $50, contributions, online fundraising from people giving 20, 30 bucks. Uh, you know, I felt that this is the way I wanted to run my campaign and show people that I can do it. And, and I've if, done it. If, if, if- and you certainly have raised a lot, a lot of small dollar donations. Uh, certainly, and we, we've we've covered that a bit. If folks want more information on that, but um, just just one more on that. You know, if if that money from the larger developers is something you want to swear off, why not return the money you got from those folks prior to making the pledge? Look, I think that I took it. I spent some, had others. I actually have returned a lot of money to be in this new system. Uh, and I've gone as far as I feel that I, I want to go. And I'm mm-hmm. very comfortable where I am today. Uh, I've worked with a lot of groups that said that part of their discussion is about perspective, uh, prospectively not taking contributions. That's what I've done. If people think that in the past, you know, I took contributions and that eliminates me from their consideration, okay, that's fine. I've landed as a candidate where I feel um, very comfortable discussing these issues and would discuss it with you. But right now, if you look at this mayor's race, I have the best pro tenant, uh, best uh, low-income housing plan. Uh, I have a history of being out in the streets on affordable housing. It's how I got my start in politics as a Mitchell independent organizer. I feel very comfortable where I am. And by the way, the bottom line is most of my contributions, all my contributions in the last two years uh, have been uh, low-dollar contributions in the system. And I'm going to feel good about it. You, um, switching subjects, you recently released a, from your controller's office, I'll assume, you know, this is uh, at least the sort of broad strokes basis of your mayoral campaign plan, too, since it just came out uh, from the controller's office, a pretty extensive uh, what you call blueprint for uh, strengthening public safety. It's a lot of police reform. It's a lot of removing responsibilities from the NYPD, overhauling a lot of uh, processes, Um one thing that struck me, and people can obviously check that check that plan out, and and obviously hit a couple of highlights if you want in answering this question. But one thing that struck me in in the whole plan is I didn't see numbers for uh, NYPD headcount. You know what you sort of think the officer number for the NYPD should be. It's currently you know somewhere in the thirty five thousand range, and I didn't see a, a budget number, sort of a, a cost. For the you know the programs you want to institute, you're talking about more investments in guidance counselors and a whole bunch of other things. Um, you know, very interesting plan. But I didn't see a headcount number for the NYPD, and I didn't see any cost estimates or budget numbers on that. Um, anything you can share on that, or uh, any reason those numbers aren't there? Well, first of all, this was a controller 
uh, a continuation of the work I did as controller. Uh, obviously, we're going to be talking more specifically about policing issues and as the campaign continues. But this was a very serious 40-page document that discussed uh, issues around how we can reimagine the police force differently uh, and how we can create a safe space for men- mental health interaction, curtailing a lot of the duties of the police so that they can do what they do and create a community safety plan. Uh, and I outline that very specifically, as you know, the, um, the, when we talk about the, the numbers, if you remember, I was the first elected official to put pen to paper and to look at laying out a blueprint to move at least a billion dollars from the NYPD and into communities, uh, while, you know, addressing the recent rise in violence. And so I have put those numbers together, you know, and not only did I put it together, but I showed how you could do it. And that's the job of controller doing those numbers. And I'll continue to outline serious, uh, you know, serious proposals. Uh, I think we do have to hold the NYPD accountable. I'm going to appoint a reform minded police commissioner. I'm going to have zero tolerance for police misconduct. I've, I've already called for stripping uh, disciplinary authority from the NYPD and real reform for the CCRB. But I've also gone farther in this report. You know, we have to invest in community-based violence prevention strategies. The violence interrupters, respected people in the community is actually working. But specifically, like, we have to cap NYPD overtime. We have to initiate, you know, some real managerial reform. That's all in my report. One of the things that we should look at is uh, the CAHOOTS program in um, Eugene, Oregon. Out of 24,000 mental health calls last year, just 150 required police backup. And they've successfully shown that with rare exceptions, we don't need armed officers in these situations. And that is what this plan was about, the most comprehensive plan on policing that has been put out. Uh, now, I'm not even talking about the mayoral candidates, just from an elected official perspective. I'm proud of this report. We didn't do it in a vacuum. We consulted with a wide range of experts. It's a very good basis for other things I'm going to do. Uh, shifting topics again, I'm wondering what your take is on um, what's happening with Governor Cuomo and this nursing home scandal that's erupted. Um, even just today, another phase of this with the governor and assembly member Ron Kim having a, a, a lot of name calling and finger pointing back and forth and accusing each other of some pretty serious uh, violations of public trust and even the law. Um, what do you think should happen next here in this reckoning that's happening around how the governor handled nursing home residents amid COVID and how the governor handled releasing information related to nursing home residents who died in places that weren't nursing homes, mostly hospitals? I believe there needs to be a robust accounting of what happened with the pandemic response to nursing homes. Uh, the attorney general is on it. Uh, she's looking at it. And I think we need a thorough investigation. I, I, New Yorkers deserve full transparency and accountability. As you know, my own mom died of COVID. And, you know, I want to make sure that, and I would want to make sure that I know everything about what happened and how, uh, how she was treated. Uh, and I expect that every parent and 
son and daughter would want to know the same. I do think on emergency powers, I think we are past the period where we should be having emergency powers for, you know, either the governor or the mayor. And, you know, I called for this with Mayor de Blasio, and I'm holding him accountable for executive overreach. I'm currently investigating uh, the city's response to the pandemic, and I'm not doing it from a, a gotcha perspective. I think going forward, it's going to be very helpful to look at what went wrong and what went well. And mm. I do think the governor has responded in so many ways uh, successfully to this pandemic, his leadership, he has been decisive. But this nursing home issue requires a full investigation. Mm-hmm. And um, just in our last couple minutes here, let's let's zoom out on this mayor's race. We're four months uh, out from voting. We'll have started four months from now, uh, early voting, and then we're we're getting close to the four months till June twenty second, the primary day. Um, do you consider yourself the front runner in this race? Uh, you know, some of the polls that have come out, which you know, there's there's different ways to question some of those, but you know, they show Andrew Yang as the front runner in the race. How do you think about where the race stands? four months out uh, from the primary? You know, with three, with three weeks to go, uh, I was 20 points behind uh, in my race against Elliot Spitzer, and I was being outspent almost two to one. Uh, he had all the recognition. He had some controversy, but I was in a perceived to be in a very serious situation. And I just know having run races where I really often never started out, you know, in front somehow through my issues and the way I can connect with voters, I've been fortunate to come out uh, ahead. And the Spitzer upset for me changed how I look at campaigns. Run your best race. Ignore the pundits. Uh, like when the polls say you're doing well, but don't get carried away when they say you're not doing well. Uh, because at the end of the day, you know, the reporters are responsible for the analysis. And I like when the analysis sides with me and I roll my eyes when I think it's going in a different direction. But that's just part of being a candidate. Uh, I think this is going to be a very competitive race. I think uh, it's People want someone with my record, my integrity, the ability to, you know, assume office on day one and get to work. I think I will win. Uh, I am not a candidate that's going to need training wheels to be mayor. And I think that's going to serve me well in the campaign. But it's up to the voters. It's up to the voters. And that's why and that's why we campaign, because we have a whole lot of convincing to do in all throughout the five boroughs. And lastly, um, you know, you, you seem to be working on sort of you mentioned early on in the conversation, you know, the coalition that you're developing. You certainly seem to be, um, you know, working on a broad coalition. You've been uh, endorsed by a wide set of, of labor unions and uh, elected officials. Is there any concern from your your camp that there's sort of a, a big group of, of unheard voters who aren't the activists and they aren't on, you know, Twitter all the time and New York politics, Twitter, and they aren't, you know, they aren't the most vocal, but they're sort of a liberal to moderate Democrat that clearly people like Eric Adams are trying to appeal to. Are you, are you concerned at all about um, sort of losing touch with those folks and, and not appealing to that whatever size group of voters that is? You know, Ben, the, 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 what I would say to that is, you know, I'm, I've been in citywide elective office for eight years, 
and I have literally been in almost every church, school, civic association from Staten Island to Queens. I've been in neighborhoods that are considered uh, more progressive. I've been in neighborhoods considered more moderate. I've been in communities of diversity, whether it's the Muslim community, the African-American community, Latino community. Uh, I've basically interacted with everybody. I'm the only candidate who's actually won, run and won a citywide race. And so I feel I'm connecting around the city because I don't, it's not like I have to introduce myself. I've won these voters when I ran for controller. I got reelected with a huge, huge majority. And so I feel very comfortable where our campaign is. I am a progressive Democrat. I'm proud of the multiracial intergenerational coalition of elected officials I've assembled. But I'm also proud of the labor leaders who are endorsing the labor leaders and organizations and the community based organizations that I believe we will get uh, many of those as well. Uh, A lot of the progressive Democratic organizations are endorsing in public votes in mass. So I'm doing as best I can in the early stages of the campaign, assembling a very far-reaching and deep uh, relationship with New York City voters, which I've done in the past. All right. Well, we could we could talk for a lot longer, but that's all the time we have today. City Comptroller Scott Stringer is a Democratic candidate for New York City mayor. Thanks for taking the time with us. Thanks, both of you. It's good to be back. All right. Hope to see you. Talk with you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks. So, Jarrett, uh, we had a good long talk there with Scott Stringer. Uh, Thoughts on the conversation? Any highlights to you? It was so many policy things that we could touch on, but pulling back to your discussion of the race with him, this is not something he said, but it was implicit, I think, in in one of your questions, which is that you know, Stringer has a real advantage in this race because he can issue and, and will issue uh, proposals and statements as a candidate and proposals and statements as a uh, comptroller. And that, that alone gives him the ability to kind of speak with a louder voice. Um, and, you know, I've noticed that he is obviously, as you heard, and, and as is quite welcome on this show, a real policy wonk. Uh, Donovan is the other kind of big policy wonk in the race. Other candidates certainly mm-hmm. have. Catherine Garcia is. too, I'd say. Correct. Right. But, um, you know, Stringer has not issued plans as as lengthy or as frequently as Donovan has. And to some degree, he doesn't have to because, you know, he's going to have the perch from which to to issue those ideas, um, whether it's public or uh, campaign oriented for a long time. And he's going to have, it appears, plenty of money to do it. Um, One thing that was interesting just in what he said toward the end was that the early stages of the race, I wonder. You know, as you said at the top of the show, we're about four months out from early voting, actually a little less than that. Um, four months come Monday from the actual primary day voting. I wonder when we move from the early stages of the race to the middle stages and, and what that will look like and how that will change approaches of candidates like Stringer and the others. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I wanted to ask him. We didn't get to it. We stretched it even a few minutes and, and still didn't get to a whole lot of stuff that we had in our uh, in our preparation. But, um, you know, I think I think we've seen some candidates uh, be out in person a bit. You know, Scott Stringer even held a press conference earlier today with a union endorsement. Um, he's done a bunch of those. Uh, not so much the retail politicking, uh, you know, the subway stops and the, you know, meet and greets around neighborhoods. We've seen a little bit of that. Um, but it will be really interesting to see how the campaign shifts. There's a lot of discussion that, you know, television ads, digital ads will be more important than ever. 
I'm not totally sure how much to how much stock to put in that. Um, obviously, people are stuck at home a bit more, and even will be probably more in the spring leading up to June. Although in April, May, June, I, you know, I do expect uh, people to be out and about more. Um, I think it's an open question, uh, and I think you know one of the biggest things Scott Stringer has going for him is um, you know he's going to have the max amount of money to spend. Uh, that's allowed in the race. And so that will be to his advantage. But, you know, he should know as controller better than just about anybody else. You have to spend your money wisely. One of the issues we didn't get to, obviously, it's a huge one. There are so many things to talk about, but is that issue of education and, and schools, a, a massive one at any point for a mayoral candidate. And this year after COVID's effect on education, a particularly important one. Uh, if you want to get Ben and my take on kind of how that issue breaks down and the questions to ask, uh, make sure you check GothamGazette.com, CityLimits.org. Late this week, early next week, we'll come out with our latest issues video on the education system. Uh, other than that, Ben, anything on your radar screen for the next few days in terms of stuff coming out from Gotham Gazette? Well, we have um, an interesting piece coming out shortly about the city's push for federal aid. And uh, obviously, there's been a lot of discussion about both Governor Cuomo, Mayor de Blasio, many other elected officials looking for a lot of federal aid from the Biden-Congress deal that seems to be in the works. Um, But we have a sort of an interesting wrinkle on that discussion in terms of how New York City and the mayor are pushing for direct aid to New York City because, as has often been the case, they get frustrated when the money goes through the governor's uh, books. So they, uh, they're looking for direct, more direct aid from the feds straight to the city. How about you? Working on some coverage of family homelessness as an issue that candidates uh, are talking about. Hopefully we'll be talking about more, you know, in this COVID crisis, a lot of focus on the rise in single adult homelessness. That's what the controversy about the Lucerne Hotel was all about. But family homelessness is still such a huge problem and so linked to so many of the other problems that we've talked about in the past, but are especially at the forefront because of COVID. So we're doing some coverage uh, on that. And we hope that you will uh, join us next week here at Max and Murphy. We hope in the interim, perhaps in the next five minutes even, you will call 516-620-3602. That's 516-620-3602. Or go to the website, give2wbai.org. That is the number to give2wbai.org. We need your support. We need it now. We need as much as you can give. We hopefully need you to become a WBAI buddy and give us regular support. Uh, ben, do you endorse that call for support? I do. And I, uh, I encourage everyone who enjoyed this program or enjoys any programming from Max and Murphy or WBAI to, to contribute. Have a great week in the greatest city in the world. <laughs>